welcome. So we come now to the scripture. Let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, um, we're grateful for the good and perfect gift of the scripture. Um, it's alive. It's powerful. This word planted in us is not a perishable seed, but imperishable. That as it takes root in our lives, it grows. And nothing can snuff it out. And so we pray that this word would simply be planted and reinforced in our hearts this morning. Please do that work in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to the Gospel of John in chapter 3. John chapter 3, please. I want to read uh, the first 21 verses. John chapter 3, please. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people have darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now we've been thinking through encounters with Jesus. You may remember a few weeks ago, this old man Simeon sees the baby Jesus, and when he looks at the baby Jesus, he says, Hearts are going to be revealed through this one. And we realize that that's true, that our hearts are revealed when we encounter Jesus. And we realize those encounters with Jesus reveal our destiny. Encounters with Jesus reveal 
our eternal destiny, how we see him, how we respond to him. So today, this man, Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a well-known, no doubt, and important man in ancient Israel. His credentials were impeccable. He was a Pharisee, which means he was part of this elite religious group. Uh, limited in number, they would be seen as those who knew the law of God and desired to follow it. And sometimes, because of our reading of the New Testament and how Jesus interacts with some Pharisees, we get the impression that, that, the, Pharisee, that the Pharisees were a group looked down upon, but it's exactly the opposite. Pharisees were respected in their day. People would grow up and want to be a Pharisee. You, went, you, you know, that's, they, were the, they were all that. So that was Nicodemus, this very, very well-respected religious man. Not only that, he was a ruler in Israel, which means he was part of the Sanhedrin. Now remember, Israel was governed ultimately by Rome, but Rome's policy was to let their occupied people sort of govern themselves. And so the, the Israelites governed themselves in this organization, this body called the Sanhedrin. And they were the executive branch, uh, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch all rolled into one. They made their laws and they enforced them. And there were only 70, sometimes 72, but only 70 of them. And Nicodemus was part of that group as a ruler in Israel. So you can only imagine how important he really, he really was. And then in verse 10, Jesus says that Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel, which means that he was a scholar it probably means that he memorized most or even all of what we call the Old, Te- Old Testament. I mean, in an oral tradition, uh, he would have memorized large, large, large portions of Scripture. And also the sacred writings that the, that the, that the Jews held in addition to the Scripture the Pharisees held and so forth. So he would know all of that. So this man, Nicodemus, comes, comes to Jesus. And we don't know exactly why he came because he really never asked a question. He just made a statement to Jesus. And then Jesus sort of picks up from that and, and goes on. But interestingly, it says that he came to Jesus in the dark. Now, sometimes that's written up to say that Nicodemus may have been ashamed to speak to Jesus publicly or didn't want anybody to know that he was really talking to Jesus or may have been afraid that Jesus might show him up in some way and didn't want that to be public. We don't really know why he came at night. Just as he did. And, and interestingly, John in his gospel is always contrasting light and darkness. Darkness is that which is lost. Light, that which is of God. And so perhaps John's just trying to give us a hint that here this man comes in darkness. And he really is. Because he comes to Jesus and he makes this statement as we see it in, um, the, middle of chapter, in the middle of verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know... That you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. In other words, Nicodemus is coming and saying, we, and it's probably not the royal we, he's probably representing all his Pharisee buddies. And so he says, we've sat around, we've watched the signs that you do, and we've come to the conclusion that you're a teacher from God because of the signs, because of these miracles that you do. Now, you'd expect Jesus to say thanks. Or, yep, that's who I am. But he doesn't. Jesus turns to him and says, truly, truly. Now, when Jesus says that, any rabbi would say that, but Jesus especially, it's really what we would say, amen and amen. We normally say that at the end. Or if you're a Baptist, 
in the middle. Uh, but, uh, but he's saying this is really, really true. Not that Jesus had to say that because he's Jesus. But truly, truly, I say to you, unless um, uh, one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, what he's saying to Nicodemus is, you think you see it, but you don't. You think you know who I am because of these miracles that you see. And you think you've rightly evaluated me and determined that I'm this rabbi, this teacher from God. But you can't, you can't see anything. Now, if I'm Nicodemus, I'm either confused by that or incensed by it. Because on the one hand, I want to say to Jesus, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know I'm a Pharisee? Don't you know I know the law? Don't you know I obey the law? If you go ask anybody out there, uh, who's the most pious one? Many of them are going to say Nicodemus. So, so how can you say that I can't see the kingdom of God? And, and if I can't see it, if I can't enter it, then, 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 then who can? And then, and then he gives you a sense that Jesus, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can anybody... Enter back into his mother's womb and be born again. And uh, it sounds like Nicodemus is a little daft at that point. He's not really following the metaphor. But he's a pretty smart guy, so maybe he is. But at least he's saying, no, there's no second chances. There's no second starts. There's no go, let's do this again. There's no change like that that can really happen. I know what you're getting at. Nothing like that uh, could ever happen. But Jesus is undeterred and basically expands on his statement. Again, he says, truly, truly, in verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit, of the Spirit is spirit. And Jesus is saying there's, there's this birth, new birth, spiritual birth, that really has to take place for you to see, for you to enter the kingdom of God. Now, how would Nicodemus understand that? And how should, should we understand that? Well, well, some take this notion, and it, it's probably right, but doesn't fit the text, that really there's two births. There's a physical birth, water, and there's a spiritual birth by the Holy Spirit. And that's no doubt true. I mean, we've all been born, <laughs> naturally speaking. And we also must be born of the Spirit. Uh, true. It's unlikely, however, that that's what Jesus meant. Because, firstly, scholars tell us that that expression, born of water, was never used in those days of a natural birth. So it would be difficult for anyone to understand it in that regard. And so some might say, well, he's referring to to baptism water and the spirit. And you go, well, that's great, except that Nicodemus really didn't have a handle on baptism. And nowhere else in the passage is baptism raised in, in that sense. So, so back to this question, how would Nicodemus, as a teacher of Israel, understand this whole idea of water and spirit? Well, turn to Ezekiel in chapter 36.
Appreciate you brave ones trying to find Ezekiel. You can hear it. Ezekiel chapter 36. Actually, you can look in your bulletin under the assurance of, of forgiveness and you would see this passage because that's the one that uh, Ryan shared with us. Ezekiel 36 verse 24. God tells his people this. It's exiled people. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put my spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There we have it. We have water and spirit all in one and this new covenant promise that God gives through the prophet Ezekiel. So Nicodemus thinking water and spirit. Oh, huh. He should understand these things. Jesus expected him to understand it. He didn't, but Jesus expected him to understand this because he was a teacher of Israel. He knew the Old Covenant. He knew the Old Testament. He should have known these things, the water and spirit. And so what Jesus is saying is that what has to happen in a person's life is that there has to be this complete transformation. And the only way to describe it is a new birth because that's what it is. It's a spiritual rebirth. And what happens when the spiritual rebirth comes upon a person is that they're given a new heart. The heart that is predisposed to sin is now replaced with a heart that's predisposed, oriented to the things of God. The way Jesus describes it is that he'll take out a heart of stone, it is a heart that's completely unresponsive, that's completely hard to the things of God. Nothing of God can penetrate into that heart. Take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that is one that's beating, that's one alive, that's one's responsive. And he'll give us a new spirit. And he'll put his spirit within us, new life. And by his spirit within us, cause us to walk in his ways. And in the midst of all that, what will come is this sprinkling, this cleansing, this purification. Do you remember, if you were here last week, that we talked about the wedding at Cana. And remember that there were these big jars and, uh, that held water, and they were water for purification? Well, that's what they were for, purification. Because what we need, you see, is cleansing. We need to be cleansed from our impurity, from our sin. And so what Jesus is saying here is you've got to be born again. And that means that cleansing comes as well as a new heart and a new spirit, as well as God's spirit put within you a complete new orientation of life. That's what this is about. In fact, Jeremiah speaks of a similar thing in a bit different way in Jeremiah in chapter 31 and verse 33. Jeremiah puts it like this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. So he says, there's something different about your heart. I'm going to take this law that's out here that you fight against. 
And I'm going to take it and I'm going to put it on the inside. A new heart. And I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor um, uh, and, and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, <clears throat> declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. This cleansing, this new spirit, this new life. And so why is all this, this necessary? Well, it's necessary, in a word, because of sin. Because sin kills us. Sin brings death. We know that. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. They rebel against God. And they do that by setting themselves up, essentially, to be their own gods. They're saying, no, we're going to live like this. We know God says live like this, but we're going to reject that and we're going to live our own way. And when we go our own way, that separates us from the life that's in God. We die. We see it physically, of course, but we also die spiritually. And the way that we see it spiritually is that we reject God in all kinds of ways, some very creative ways to make it look like we're really really following him when we're really not. And so we reject him. You see, that's this spiritual, this spiritual, this spiritual death. Jesus speaks of it in chapter 3. The end of it where we were reading this morning in verse 19. He puts it like this. And he says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, because of sin, we actually like darkness. We actually like evil. No matter how good it looks. We like evil. In fact, in chapter 8 of John's gospel... In verse 34, Jesus puts it like this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see, we're enslaved by it. We can't get out of it. That's the problem. It enslaves us so we really have no hope. How do you get out of a situation in which you're in bondage, in which you're enslaved, in which you're shackled, if you will, uh, shackled to it? In fact, in Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul speaks of uh, this sin as well. Notice how he puts it. Verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, that's the deal. It isn't that you can pass a multiple choice test on it. It's just you won't obey it. And it's just you just don't want to. This isn't the life it's life to me. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, naming, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Oh, that's interesting. Did not honor God as God as the one to be loved and joyfully obeyed. And the one to be thanked for all the blessings. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And rather than recognize all blessings from God, we recognize blessings from ourselves. And we give ourselves thanks. That's his point. 
says, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, we began to worship the creator rather than the creator. We began to worship what we've done and not what he's done, even in and through us. We marvel at the light bulb and forget about the one who made the sun, Right? And that's our sin. Uh, You may have this passage going through your mind from Ephesians in chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Uh, that's, that's all of us. You know, the thing about being dead is that you're dead, right? You're unresponsive to anything that comes to you. You're dead. It's, it's like the heart of stone. It's, it's a, a heart that's stone, so it, it's just dead. Uh, nothing can penetrate it. And sin, you see, spiritually kills us. And so, so, so the only thing that can overcome death is life. But the only way life can come, of course, is from the outside. And from somebody who's powerful enough to bring that life to us. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, continues on like this. He says, now this I say... And testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That we all do, really. In the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. It's a willful ignorance. I don't want to follow God. Due to the the hardness of their hearts, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see, that's the sense of What sin does to us, it kills us. So the only real way that life can come is from the outside, by someone who is life. And that's what all this speaks to. You know, we can't do it ourselves. That's the whole idea about the metaphor, it's real, but also the image of birth. The one born... You know this. The one born had nothing to do with his or her birth. It was the plan. Well, not always. (laughs) But it was the work of another that led to conception and, and birth. And that's the point here. God is saying to us, this is the work of another. You can't do it. It has to come. From outside. It has to come from life itself. It has to come from God who is life. Best picture? Who do you think? Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Jesus got word from Lazarus' sister, Mary and Martha. Sisters, Mary and Martha, that he was ill. Finally, he died. Jesus went up. He'd been dead a while. Four days, the scripture says he was in the tomb. The King James Version puts it very nicely. He stinketh, right? The smell of death. Jesus 
Weeps, then goes to the tomb, says, Lazarus, come forth. I don't know about you, but I've spent a significant, compared to other things, portion of my life meditating on what that must have been like. It comes to my mind all the time. What would it have been like to be there that day? And you have this tomb and this big stone and all of that sort of thing. And, 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 and Jesus simply says to this guy, you know, is dead. Lazarus come forth. He's all wrapped up and he does. It's exactly what takes place in the heart of someone upon whom the Spirit of God comes to bring life. We're awakened to all that is true about God. We see it. And to Nicodemus, Jesus is saying, you can't see this, you can't enter this until that happens. Until you have been uh, born again. And it's just a flabbergasting thing. When I think about the fact of having been born again, and I realize that it came from God, and it came from the outside, and it isn't anything that I did, it brings chills. Because we all know people who've heard the gospel, and they do not believe. Uh, We've shared the gospel with people who will not believe, who don't see it. We've been raised with people who haven't seen it. And we have. And do you ever think about that? I hear the gospel and I believe. And you ever wonder why? And the answer is because God has given you new life that enables you to believe. Why? I don't know me. I don't why not them. He just says receive this and know it. But this is the way it happens. By the grace of God. Not by anything we are. Not by anything we've done. Not by anything we haven't done. And to Nicodemus, you can only imagine. Because he's thinking and everybody else is thinking behind him. He's done everything. So then the question. How do you know? How do you know if you've been born again? And Jesus says, well, let me give you an illustration. It's the wind. Now, this is a pun. It's not a very funny pun, but it's a pun nonetheless, because the word for spirit and the word for wind is the same in Greek. And so Jesus is talking about the wind all of a sudden. Now, you don't know if he was with Nicodemus, if all of a sudden the wind started swooping up. My guess is it did, because you'd think Jesus created his own illustrations, you know. And so, um, you know what life is like? I'll raise Lazarus. Oh, you know what spirit is like? I'll make the wind blow. I don't know what happened. But he said, you know, you can't see it, the wind, where it's coming from, where it goes. But you know where it's been. Because you can hear it and you can see it when the wind blows. And he said, that's the way it is with the Spirit. You know he's been here. Well, how do you know? Well, you know, because there's new life. And when there's new life, then there's a complete reorientation of one's life to God. The way, the way uh, it, Mark puts it as he opens his gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. He writes, now after John, that's John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. How do you know that you've been born 
into this kingdom of God, it's because when you're commanded to repent, it makes sense. And when you're commanded to believe the gospel, you say yes. It makes sense. See, repentance means there's a change. That's this transformation. Everything looks different now. I can see it. And what you can see is the reality of your sin. And what you can see is God's righteousness and justice in condemning you for that sin and those sins. God is no longer an ogre for being the judge. Now you see that he's righteous for being the judge. All of a sudden, you see, yes, I deserve all of that. But, but, But you see more, you see. You see Jesus. And then so you say, yes, this is wrong. I confess this. I desire to turn from this. And you see Jesus. And there's your hope. Because he's the very one who's given himself to die for you. So that your sins will be forgiven. And so what you know and what you experience is that you've been sprinkled clean. And you've been purified. You've been cleansed. How does David put it in? Psalm 51, when he makes the confession of, uh, of his sins, he starts out by saying, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Sprinkle me clean, he says. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's the sense. How do I know I've been born again? Because when I sin, this is what happens. This is what I do. I go to be cleansed by it. And I know that because of Christ, I've been cleansed uh, from my sin. But also faith, you know. I, 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 I confess, I repent, I trust in Jesus. I see that indeed he is the very one who has dealt with my sin, become sin for me so that I might be righteous in the sight of God. And then to see that, that what produces in me is this desire to follow him, to do that which is good. There should be works that accompany my new heart. Oh, I, I don't do these things to get a new heart. I've got a new heart, so now I'm changed. So I should see it. We should see these differences in our lives because we have been born again. First John chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That's really true, isn't it? Chapter 3, verse 9. And when born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. First uh, John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Right, chapter 5 verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. 
for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see the evidence, the indicators that we've been born. You know, when a baby is born, a little baby is born, you know that the baby has been born because they do stuff. Right? They cry. And then they do stuff, often on your shirt. And then they grow. Well, you see it, they're alive, they've been born. We've been born again, why? How do we know? Well, because of this repentance, because of this, this faith, because of this, this new life. And, and then you, you might say, though, but, but, but I still sinned. Does that mean I haven't been born again? And, and, and I, I would walk you down this road and I would say, well, how do you know that you've sinned? You say, well, I read in the scripture. And I look at my life, and I realize I've sinned against God. And then I say, how do you feel about that? What do you think about that? And you go, well, I grieve about that. I really wish I hadn't. Well, then what do you do? Well, then I, I go to God and I ask him to forgive me. Well, on what basis do you go to God to ask for forgiveness? Well, on the basis of Christ. Because of what he did, he took my sin upon himself and died so that I might be cleansed, forgiven my, my sin. Well, then what? Well, then I really wish I wouldn't sin. Well, then what do you do? Well, I go to the scripture and I ask God, what's it really mean to follow you? Well, then what? Well, then I ask him to help me because I know I can't do it on my own strength, but he's put his spirit within me to cause me to walk in his way. So, so I ask him to help me and I depend upon him to help me to obey him. And I go, oh yeah, the wind of the spirit. There you go. That's it, you see. Being born again. So how do we get it? Well, Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, gives Nicodemus something that should make perfect sense to him. But as I read it, I wonder sometimes, Jesus, why did you use that particular expression? In verse 14, he said, As, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. All right. Well, you know, Nicodemus was a student of the Old Testament. So he would recognize this immediately. You may as well. You may recognize the passage out of, out of the book of Numbers and, and, and may recognize the fact that, that this is a situation where ancient Israel hasn't yet made it to the land of promise. And God is, is, is with them. And they're, they're grumbling against God. And as they grumble against God, because they have no bread and they have no water, they just have all this nasty manna. Uh, that he gives them every day for free. And, uh, and, and that's all they have. And so they're grumbling to God. And, 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 and that may not seem like a big deal to us, but it really is because he had delivered them from the bondage to their slavery in Egypt and promised them this great home and was leading them there and taking care of them in every way. And this, was, this grumbling was a rejection of everything that God had done and all who God is in their lives. And, and so... God judged them, and when he did that, he sent these venomous snakes among them. And these snakes would bite people, people would die. So Moses cried out to the Lord, and he said, what can I do? And so God says, well, make a snake, and put it on a stick, and hold it up. So everybody can see it. Put it in the ground, 
So everybody can see it. So everybody who looks on this snake that you put up there will live. And Jesus said, the son of man must be lifted up. You see, these snakes that came weren't preventative. They were the wrath of God. And when Jesus is lifted up, it's a sign of the wrath of God against our sin. The difference is that Jesus had never sinned. That's the shocking part of it. When we look at that, we go, oh, yes, I see. He became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus lifted up. And we realize that the snake was a sign of the curse against their sin. But if they looked at the sign of the curse against their sin, they would live. And we realize this cross upon which Jesus had been put is the curse upon our sin. And the sign of the curse then becomes our hope. <laughs> As they looked at Jesus, I'm sorry, the snake, and we look at Jesus, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Charles Spurgeon, um, preacher of some uh, great power and strength in the 19th century, wrote up a story of his conversion. Uh, He was 16 years old and he writes it like this. He said, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. From Isaiah forty-five twenty-two. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now looking, don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just, well, look, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. But Jesus says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good fellow 
Followed, then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating in great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. And when he had gone about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you'll always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I've been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost look my eyes away. Then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. And now I can say, ere by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has all my theme. It shall be till I die. When you encounter Jesus, what do you see? You see your sin. Do you see the cross and the atoning sacrifice? And do you believe? George Whitfield, a preacher in the Reformation time, approximately. Uh, Great Awakenings, more likely, sorry. Um, preached, they say, over 3,000 sermons on the theme of, you must be born again. And someone asked him why he preached so many sermons on the theme, you must be born again. And his answer was, because you must be born again. Let's pray. Father, be with us. Cause us by your spirit to see Jesus. To really see him. To see him, we know we must be born again. Please, do that work in us. But for those who are just now seeing Enable them to see clearly. For those of us who've seen, but perhaps the vision is dimmed, 
restore by your spirit that sight. Forgive us. Sprinkle us. May your spirit within us cause us to walk in your ways. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.